Our sermon this morning is from 1 Kings chapters 9 through 11. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 9. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find 1 Kings chapter 9 on page 270. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat in front of you and turn there. Um, you'll want to have one open because, again, we, we, this has been the case for the last few weeks. We don't have any on the slides. It's just too much. We've got to cover a lot of ground. And so, yeah, grab a Bible, turn to page 270, uh, or open up and prepare. We've been looking for the last few weeks at the life and reign of King Solomon. Uh, we saw him take over uh, for the, the throne of his father, David, and David gave him these kind of uh, final instructions, and he establishes his rule. We saw uh, King Solomon's vast uh, and unprecedented and, and just spectacular wisdom and wealth. God comes to Solomon and says, I'll give you anything that you ask. And he says, I want you to make me wise so that I can be a godly ruler over your people. And God's like, it's pretty impressive. It's good. That's a good ask. In fact, I thought you were going to ask for money, but you asked for wisdom, so I'll give you wisdom and money. So well, Solomon is the wealthiest person in the world. He's the wisest person in the, in the world. He, he uses this money, he uses this wisdom to build the temple and the palace. We kind of looked uh, at, the, at the temple and the palace and how the temple is central to the storyline of Scripture and how Solomon's building it was the fulfillment of these prophecies and promises from God. And today we're going to look at the end of the story. Uh, Solomon dies at the end of chapter, spoiler alert, end of chapter 11. So this is the, the tail end of Solomon's life. And another spoiler alert, doesn't turn out well. It's kind of, kind of tanks at the, at the end of his, his life. And so we're going to look. We're going to look at how Solomon kind of lived out the, the remainder of his days and kind of learn what we can from him, but also uh, consider the ways in which he is, you know, a cautionary tale for us and learn from his mistakes as well. We're going to think about, to think together about what it means and what it looks like to persevere uh, in the faith. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to dive in and kind of sprint through chapters 9 through 11. Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace for these next few minutes. Lord, we pray that you would quiet our hearts and help us to hear from you. We pray that you would speak to us and that we could listen. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 9, verse 1. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. So God had already appeared to Solomon once in 1 Kings chapter 3 to offer him, you know, I'll give you anything that you ask for. Now he's appearing to them again, verse 3. I've heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. Verse 4. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, and if you do according to all that I've commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised your father David, saying, you shall never lack a man on the throne of Israel. God's promising to Solomon, if you walk with me like your father did, I will bless you and establish you like I established your father. Verse 6, but if you turn from me, you or your children, if you do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, if you go serve other gods and worship them instead of me, 
Then I will cut off from Israel, or I'll cut Israel off from the land that I've given them. The house that I've consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among the nations. Everyone will come by and they'll see this, this house of ruins. They'll be astonished and they'll hiss and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to his house? And then they will say, Because they abandoned their Lord, their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought disaster on them. So God says, Walk with me. I I am giving you the same expectations, the same requirements, the same uh, accountability that I gave your father. If you want to experience my blessing, if you want to enjoy uh, life in the land under my rule, then you have to walk with me. And if you don't, then there will be judgment. Judgment, Judgment such that people will see it and be terrified of the judgment of God in their lives if they follow in your footsteps. If you, if you walk with me and experience my blessing, then people will see it and be encouraged, and they will be compelled to walk with me like you are. And if you don't walk with me, and if you don't worship me, people will see the judgment of God in your life and be terrified of it and be compelled to not make the same mistakes that, that you made. What's interesting, when you kind of hold up 1 Kings chapter 3, God's first appearance to Solomon against 1 Kings chapter 9, God's second appearance to Solomon, they look different. <coughs> they, the, the first appearance to Solomon is God saying, um, ask me for anything that you want, right? Pick anything in the world that you want, ask it for me, and I will give it to you. And then he kind of follows up with, with lots of words of affirmation, commendation. Solomon, I'm, I'm proud of you for asking this thing. I'm going to give you wealth. I'm going to give you wisdom. It's a lot of just free, unmerited favor and grace and affirmation. And 1 Kings 9 is God reiterating his authority, his, his you know, his uh, being in charge over, like it's it's accountability and responsibility from Solomon to to God, right? Unconditional love and grace on the one hand in chapter three, responsibility and accountability in chapter nine, and both of those are necessary for a healthy understanding of God and a healthy understanding of the of the Christian life. There's a reason why. God speaks both of these two in different parts of Solomon's life, and we would do well to consider them and to appropriate both of those aspects of who God is and how God interacts with his people. In our, there's a lot of people that will sacrifice one on the altar of the other, right? Unconditional love, grace, affirmation on the one hand, authority, accountability, responsibility on the other hand, and people, are ten, people have a tendency to overemphasize one at the expense of the other. But we need both. Right? A lot of people are, are, are in the authority and responsibility camp, so those people out there need to do better. They need to be more accountable for their, for their choices. Everyone, they need to stop looking for a handout. They need to get their act together. If they, if they would make better choices like me, then things would go better for them. But the reality is that that God has treated all of us far better than we deserve to be treated. 
if we're being honest, about who we are and about our own flaws and our own failures and our own brokenness, if we're being painfully honest, then we would, we would admit that we all need compassion and grace, that, that uh, you know, as much as we uh, call for accountability and responsibility when we look at others, we, we uh, are entirely dependent on God's grace and his compassion in our own lives, right? If you, if you look at the problems in the world and think that by and large they come from other people who have made bad choices, who don't think and act the way that you do, if you think that the problems in the world come from other people and not from you and your own heart, then you have missed the heart of the gospel message. So we can't overemphasize accountability and responsibility at the expense of compassion and grace, but we also can't overemphasize compassion and grace at the expense of accountability and responsibility. There's a lot of people, I've, I've talked with a lot of people, I'm a pastor, so whenever I meet anyone new and ask them, you know, we kind of make small talk and they ask me what I do and I say I'm a pastor, it invariably kind of brings about a, a conversation that's spiritual in nature, right? If you're a pastor, you can't fly anywhere on an airplane without having a talk about spiritual things. You can't meet someone new. And so what I found talking with a lot of people inside the church and outside the church is that most of the people in, in our culture, right, in, in, in America in the 21st century, most people believe in God or at least identify as believing in God. The, the number of people that actively volunteer that they are an atheist and they don't believe in God, I find personally to be in the minority. Not a lot of people say that they don't believe in God, but I find that a lot of people, despite the fact that almost all the people I talk to say I believe in God, they maybe identify as a spiritual person or whatnot, um, most people don't have a problem with the idea that God exists. They don't disbelieve in the existence of God. They have a problem with the idea of a God who has authority over them. A God to whom they are accountable. A God that can make demands and claims on their life and then they are obligated to obey those demands and claims by virtue of the fact that God is the creator and they are a, a creature. That, that, so the, the person that identifies as believing in God, I find to be in the vast majority, but the person who acknowledges God as the authority over their life, who can, who can tell them what to do and they have to do it, that I find to be the minority. A lot of people think, if God is there to give me grace and love and affirmation, then by all means, I am a big fan of God and who he is. But don't imply that God is there to demand any sort of accountability from me. Don't imply that he's there to hold me responsible or that he expects me to listen to him or obey him. The only one that can make demands of me is me. The only one who has final authority over me and my life is, is me. The only, one, the only voice I need to listen to is, is me. I've, I've shared this before, but we have two little boys, and so we watch a lot of uh, Disney movies. And I find a recurring theme that runs through almost all of the Disney movies. They're, all, they're almost all about someone, be it a teenage girl, an ice princess, an island princess, a mermaid, uh, a lion, a fish, a car, whatever. It's all about someone, 
and that someone or something has this urge deep down inside that it needs to go explore the world. It needs to go accomplish this thing. It's got a song in its heart. It, it's, right, it's, some, it's, it's, it's deep inside. It's, it's being pulled to go do X, Y, and Z. And there's some authority figure, parent, right, you know, teacher, wicked stepmother, whatever, that's saying, no, don't do that, right? Don't go do that thing. You have to stay here. You have to stay in the palace. You have to stay on the island. You're not allowed to go do that thing that you uh, want to do. And, and the, the whole thrust of the whole story is they're having to cast off the shekel, the, right, the, the, all of the, the shackles of, of like, you know, I got to get this external authority off of me so I can go do the thing that my heart is calling me to do and be the person that my heart is calling me to, to be. I got to follow the voice inside, right? Almost, they're all, they're all, any movie, it's a similar, similar theme. But like the, right, if you're, if you kind of think about it, the, the concerning thread that runs through them is this idea that I have to follow my own voice. I have to do what I want. I have to be who I think I should be. No one else can tell me what to do. No one else can tell me who to be. I have to, you know, listen to myself. No one else can. And if we take that kind of that expressive individualism that I as the individual am the one who dictates terms and says where I'm supposed to go and what I'm supposed to be and and who I am, if we take that and we import it into our relationship with God, then we end up with that kind of love, grace, compassion, affirmation, but no authority, no accountability, no responsibility. So God is, is there, but he's not allowed to tell me what to do. He's not allowed to hold me accountable in any way. And this is equally dangerous and equally threatening to the message of the, of the gospel. The reality is that God is the creator, you are the creature, God makes the rules, we live according to his rules, God is the, the king of our lives, we are not the king of our own lives. So, so if you walk through your life continually under the impression that I'm, I'm always right. Everyone should do what I say. Everyone should defer to me. I am entitled to get what I want. I should never have to defer to anyone else. They should have to defer to me. That's a, that's a problem. It's, it's dangerous to overemphasize accountability and responsibility while underemphasizing love and grace. It's also dangerous to overemphasize love and grace while underemphasizing accountability and responsibility. In 1 Kings 3, God appears to Solomon with a message of love and grace and kindness. In 1 Kings 9, God appears to Solomon with a message of authority and responsibility and accountability, and both of those are central to the message of the, of the gospel. If you, if you neglect either one, you lose the gospel. If you neglect either one, you fall prey to sin and selfishness and, and pride. Verse 10, it says, At the end of 20 years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired, King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Awesome. Great. 
Thanks, Solomon. What a great, you know, this is, man, it's almost like we have an equal partnership here. I give you the resources that you want and need and the manpower, and you're giving me 20 cities. Not quite, verse 12. But Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, and they did not please him. These cities are, they're lame, right? These are, they're not good cities. They're not good real estate. He says, what kind of cities are these that you've given me? And so they are called the land of Kabul to this day. The word Kabul means binding or fetter, like a, a slave would have around his, his, his wrist. It's chains. And so King Hiram is kind of acknowledging the reality that Solomon, this is not an equitable partnership, right? Like, you, that you are, based on the gift that you gave me, you are very clearly, you know, declaring yourself to be the alpha, the, you know, top dog in this relationship, and I am the subservient, I'm the one, right? right? You are, the, the situation that we have is, you ask of me whatever you want, and I give it to you, no questions asked. You give me in reciprocation whatever you decide you want to give me, and I just take it, no questions asked. So Solomon, Solomon's starting to look like a jerk a little bit. Solomon is, he's not interested in fairness or partnership. It's dominance. You work for me. You do what I say. You'll take what I give you. Verse 15, and this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord in his own house in Milo and the wall around Jerusalem and Hazar. Verse 16, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it down with fire, and he had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his own daughter, to Solomon's wife. So, so the author is kind of calling, he's kind of pointing back to Egypt, pointing back to Pharaoh, and he's pointing to this uh, you know, genocide that, that Pharaoh commits and pointing that Solomon is profiting from it and Solomon is, is you know, welcoming the proceeds from this you know, genocidal... The, the author is kind of saying, right, uh, remember, like, don't forget that Solomon uh, availed himself of forced labor, which is also called slavery. Don't, don't forget that Solomon enslaved people. Solomon treated people the same way that the Egyptians treated the Hebrews when they were in captivity, right? Don't forget that Solomon married the daughter of Pharaoh, right? He married the daughter of the guy who enslaved and abused us, and now he is benefiting from and profiting from that, that relationship. So, so the further we get through 1 Kings 9, Solomon is looking worse and worse. He's selfish, and he's self-centered, and he's not others-centered, He's profiting from violence. In, uh, in verse 18 and following, it makes it clear that, uh, you know, he didn't enslave uh, Israelite citizens, right? He, he, the, the manual labor, the slave labor was done by Canaanites and other foreigners, and the, the Israelite citizens that were conscripted into, they were kind of drafted into service, they were given higher, cushier jobs, officials, commanders, captains, these kinds of things. Verse 26, King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is known as which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen, who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought gold from there, talents, they brought it to King Solomon. So at this point, Solomon has kind of squeezed all of the money and all of the resources out of his, you know, nation through taxation and through through trade and things like that. <coughs> He's 
He's kind of gotten as many resources as he can from the surrounding nations through tribute and through trade. And now he's starting to uh, kind of take ships and kind of expand the borders further and further, go further and further to farther countries away, bring back tribute and gifts from them to me, uh, go buy things that they have that are undervalued and bring them back to me so that we can go and sell them elsewhere at a, at a profit, right? Everyone, everywhere, like everywhere that the ships from Israel land, Solomon's reputation precedes them. And so they're all, you know, we want we want this powerful king, we want this wise king, we want this rich king to be on our side. So we want to ally with him. We want, to, uh, we want him to be our patron king, and we want to be a vassal state of his king and his empire. So further and further, boats are going out, bringing back money, and Solomon has this huge, sprawling empire. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to him to test him with hard questions. Queen of Sheba, Sheba, we're not entirely sure where it is, best guess, probably modern day, um, you know, modern day Yemen, somewhere in southern Arabia. She came to Jerusalem with, great, with a great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And she came to Solomon and she told him that everything that was on her mind. And so she brings all of these fancy, expensive gifts, nothing compared to what Solomon already had, right? Uh, presumably, the reason why she's coming to him and asking for some time in his presence. It's because he's a bigger, richer, more powerful king, and she's got a, a smaller empire and a smaller net worth. But nevertheless, she's got this big gift, and she brings it to him, and she asks him all of these questions. Verse 3, Solomon answered all of her questions, and there was nothing hidden from the king, or there was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. So, you know, riddles, puzzles, would-you-rathers, right? Whatever, like all the you know, what-if scenarios, all the different questions that she asks him, and she's trying to see if he's really as smart or as wise as he thinks he is, and he crushes it, you know, bats a thousand, gets them all right. Verse 4, And when the queen of Sheba had, had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attendance of his servants, their clothing, their cupbearers, his burnt offerings and offered in the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Oh, right, she's like, can't even believe how rich and how impressive and how attractive this guy is. This is unbelievable. Takes her breath away. Verse 6. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom. I didn't believe the reports until I came and I saw with my own eyes. And behold, it's not, that's not even the half of it. Right? It's even, right, you're richer than they... Uh, everyone told me how rich and how smart you were and I thought there's no way that's got to be an exaggeration. Now I'm seeing you. You're richer than they said. You're smarter than they said. Blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set on you the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He's made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. Verse 10, then she gave a, the king 120 talents of gold and very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. And moreover, the fleet of Hiram, uh, which, or of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought from Ophir a very great amount of almug wood and precious stones. And the king made almug wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, also lyres and harps for the singers, no such almug wood has come or been seen to this, to this day. So he's taking all of these gifts, he's using it to reinforce the foundation in the temple, the, the support beams, building musical instruments out of them. Verse 13, and then King Solomon gave the queen of Sheba all that she desired. 
whatever she asked besides what was given her by the bounty of King Solomon. So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Presumably, Solomon gives her an even bigger, greater gift than she brought to him. Right? She came to him with as big of a gift as she could afford to, to kind of buy some time in his presence. And he wows her and amazes her. And then he gives to her as big of a gift as, you know, he can, it's, you know, drop in the bucket for him. So he gives her this big, huge gift and sends her away. <coughs> Verse 14 and following describes the extravagant wealth of King Solomon. Now the weight of gold that came to him was 666 talents every year. Besides that which came from explorers and from business of merchants and all the kings of the west and the governors of the land, King Solomon made large shields of gold. She- you know, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. They made 300 shields of gold with three minas into each shield. And he put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seats were armrests made with two lions standing beside the armrests. And 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the, of the six steps. The like of it was never in, made in any kingdom. All of King Solomon's drinking vessels were made of gold. All the vessels in the house of the forest of Lebanon were made of gold. There was no, no such thing as silver. Silver was, what a joke, right? Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. It was, it was just paper. You throw it in the trash. Silver is worthless. Gold is the absolute bare minimum of what I'll allow anywhere near my, my presence. The king had a fleet of ships. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish was used, bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. Solomon lives this, you know, if you like Google, right, if you like look up like uh, Mike Tyson, right, when he like, you know, made a bunch of bajillion dollars for one fight and he like started just buying all these exotic animals. He like would go walk, he would, he had a tiger. He had a tiger on a leash and he would just walk it down the street. Like it was like a domesticated animal, right? As Solomon had like all of these exotic animals and just, you know, everything that you could ever possibly imagine. Verse 23, thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon. They wanted to hear his wisdom that God had put in his mind. And every one of them brought presents, silver, which he just kind of discarded, and it's worthless, right? And gold and garments and myrrh and spices and horses and mules, so much year after year, just gifts and tribute. Solomon is so great. Solomon is so awesome. Everyone's kind of bowing before Solomon. Verse 26, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in chariot cities and uh, with the king in Jerusalem. He's got an army, got skilled warriors with weapons. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Ku. The king's traders received them from Ku at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And then through the king's traders, they would be exported to all the kings of all the Hittites and all the kings throughout Syria. So he's got this huge, it, it's a, he's got a big, uh, he's a trader, right? Like Sol, Solomon's net worth was kind of established through, through trade. He would kind of go buy up anything, anywhere that was undervalued, and then he would turn around, turn around and ship it all over the globe to anyone anywhere that wanted it at a huge markup. He'd go buy horses 
from his father-in-law, Pharaoh, in Egypt, and then he would turn around and sell those horses for more than he paid uh, up in Syria, the other, the other direction from, from Egypt. So he was an arms dealer, among other things, right? He, was, he, he made, mo- made money through taxing his citizens. He made money through tribute and gifts from other nations, but he made money through trade, buying low and selling high. Now, if you look at the picture that we see of Solomon... In 1 Kings 9 and 10, the wealth of Solomon and the wisdom... Like, a few weeks ago, we looked at the wealth of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon as seen in 1 Kings 3 and 4. And if we juxtapose that against the wealth of Solomon and the wisdom of Solomon that we see in 1 Kings 9 and 10, it's kind of a different picture. And it's kind of a, an unflattering picture of the trajectory of Solomon's life and his heart. <coughs> Back in 1 Kings 3, Solomon's wisdom was this great, glorious thing, right? God was proud of Solomon. He was affirming Solomon for asking for wisdom. I said, you can have anything you want. I thought you'd ask for a TV. I thought you'd ask for, right? But you asked for wisdom. That's amazing. Way to go. I'm going to give you wisdom as well as all of these other things. And then how does Solomon use his wisdom in 1 Kings 3? It's the story of the two women that come to him, and one of them had a child die in the middle of the night, and he uses his wisdom to ascertain which one actually has a maternal instinct that's drawn to the child. That's the mother. I'm going to give righteousness. I'm going to, I'm going to you know, make a righteous judgment in her favor. And the one who's not, I'm not going to let the mother get have her child stolen from her. So he's wise, and he's using his wisdom to bless other people, using his wisdom to take care of people who are vulnerable and who are in need. That's Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings 3. Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings 10 is, ask me any question you want, and let me wow, let me dazzle you with the answer. Let me impress you. Let me take your breath away by how smart and savvy and clever I am with the, the answer. The, 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 the wisdom in 1 Kings 3 is used to bless others and, and do righteousness and justice. The wisdom in 1 Kings 10 is used to impress people and make much of myself and take their breath away with how smart I am. It's, it's, a, it's an inherently self-exalting wisdom which is really folly and, and not wisdom at all. Same thing with money, right? In 1 Kings 4, it describes Solomon's wealth. And what, what you'll see described a lot there is food, right? Here's how all the people in Israel ate, right? Here's how Solomon ate. Here's how the people around him ate, right? They had all of these different kinds of uh, wonderful... It says, it says uh, the, the number of people in Israel was as the sand on the seashore. There's tons of people there, and everyone in Israel uh, sat under their own vine and fig tree, and everyone had everything that they needed, and there was peace and prosperity on all sides. The money of Solomon is described in terms of people in Israel being blessed and having what they, what they need to live and flourish and enjoy. The wealth in 1 Kings 10 is not described in terms of food for people to live and thrive. It's described in terms of gold, gaudy, excessive, ungodly, ridiculous amounts of gold, right? So much gold that like silver is just garbage. Get it out of my sight. I can't even believe that you would bring that pathetic silver into my presence, right? Like the, the, the wealth of Solomon by 1 Kings 10 is describing not a, a, a grand, rich, generous king who blesses everyone. It's, it's describing a, 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 an excessive, 
a, a lifestyle that's so excessive and so luxurious that it's bordering on unhealthy and kind of, kind of gross. That's the trajectory that we're seeing in Solomon's life, right? Wealth and wisdom that are initially kind of given from God and initially used uh, to accomplish the purposes of God, but, but we kind of see chapter by chapter, you know, act by act, compromise by compromise, right? He starts to use this wealth and wisdom, not how God would intend for them to be used, right? Here's all this wealth, here's all this wisdom, great. I'm going to build you a temple, God. It'll take me about seven years. And then I'm going to spend twice as much time building a much bigger structure for me to live in, right? There's, there's self-exaltation and self-promotion. He kind of started to buy his own press a little bit. Everyone in the whole world thinks Solomon is awesome, thinks Solomon is so smart, Solomon is so rich, Solomon is so great. And he starts to believe it. And he starts to kind of get lured away from loving God and walking with God because of, because he's buying, he, his own, he's starting to look less and less like a faithful, godly king of Israel and more and more like the wicked Pharaoh of Egypt. What's interesting, if you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17, which is on page, on page 150, in the Pew Bible. Page 117, you see laws concerning the kings of Israel. Starting in verse 14. When you come into the land that the Lord is giving you, and you possess it and you dwell in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you, but the Lord will choose him. Right? One from among your brothers that you shall set as king. You shouldn't put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And here's what the king has to do. Deuteronomy 17, 16. The king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return again that way and he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away and he shall not acquire excessive silver and gold for himself. That's like check, check, right? Like every single... He, Solomon, it's almost like he was, ex, was explicitly intentionally... Trying to, right, he, he, not only did he acquire horses, he went to Egypt to acquire horses. The exact place that they say don't go there to acquire horses. Silver, gold, all of these, all these things we're going to see in chapter 11. We're going to see the, the acquiring of many wives. Here's what he's supposed to do. Verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law approved by Levit- the Levitical priests. So, it was before Amazon... It was before the printing press. And so uh, God says, here's what I want the king to do. Literally get a Bible and get a blank notebook and a big pen and just write it. It probably seems stupid because you can just buy it, but I don't want you to do that. I want you to, I want you to get it and write it so you can feel it working its way into your hands and into your brain as you, as you think about it and contemplate it, right? Write the book of the law and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he can fear, that he can learn to fear the Lord his God and keep all of his words, his laws, his statutes and doing them. That his heart may not be lifted up by his brothers, right? That he doesn't start to believe his own press and be impressed with himself. That he may not turn aside from the commandments of God to the right or to the left. That he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. That's God's vision for what a king is to be. What, right? A king is an under-shepherd. A king submits to the authority of God. A king listens to the words of God. A king does not run after money and sex and power. Right? 
uh, gold and wives and horses, right? A king doesn't go after those things that will probably be available to him in plentiful supply. No, a king reads the word of God, obeys the word of God. That's his job. That's what he is supposed to do. By the time we get to the end of 1 Kings 10, Solomon has completely conformed to everything that the king is not supposed to do, and he has completely... He's become completely indifferent to everything that the king was supposed to do. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. So he started with possibly the, you know, the, the, the worst. right? He started with the, the daughter of the king who oppressed and enslaved the people of Israel. The people that God said stay away from, that's where he went first. But in addition to the daughter of Pharaoh, he married women... Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from nations concerning which the Lord had said, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods. God says, don't marry these people, and here's why. Solomon marries these people, clings to them in love. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. So a thousand times he did the exact thing that God said don't do. And then the exact thing that God said will happen if you do it is exactly what happened in Solomon's life. His wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not after the, the Lord his God, like, like David's was. Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not follow the Lord as David his father had done. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for, Mech, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. He did so for all of his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Any wife that he married, any god that they wanted to worship, sure, honey, let's work. Like, not only am I, do, am I affirming you in worshiping that god, but I'm going to do it with you. Let's do it together. Molech, Molech of the Ammonites was a particularly nasty god. Worshiping Molech involved child sacrifice. Uh, altar to Molech was a big bronze statue of a bull that was hollowed out with a fireplace in the middle of it. And the bull had these arms that would kind of sit out. And so they would heat a big, big hot fire in the middle of the bronze bull that would heat up the arms. And then they would, put, they would sacrifice children to Molech by putting them on this burning hot bronze. And they would have a, a drum circle on the side, beating drums. The express purpose was to drown out the screaming and the crying of the parents whose children were being sacrificed so that Molech could be appeased, so that maybe he'll give us rain and we can have crops. That was, that was who Solomon's wife worshipped. And that was who Solomon worshipped along with his wife. That was Solomon financed the building of an altar to do that in the nation of Israel. This is the, the man who was once the wisest and richest and kind of the, the, the pinnacle of godliness as far as we can tell. And we have just seen complete moral degradation. And we have seen him exchange wisdom for... I mean, Solomon himself said in Proverbs 9, here's what wisdom is. The fear of the Lord 
is the beginning of wisdom, right? So God gave me wisdom. God made me wise. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what it means to be wise. Fear God. Keep His commandments. Walk with Him. Read His Word. Listen to Him. The definition of folly, according to Psalm 14, is to say in your heart that there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So, so wisdom is knowing God and worshiping God. Folly is rejecting God, turning away from God, worshiping other gods instead of the true God. Solomon started off wise, and he has now become foolish. And because of his sin, God is going to bring judgment against him in verse 9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes and that I've commanded you, I'm going to tear the kingdom away from you and give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of your father David, I will not do it in your days. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. And, and I also, for the sake of David, I'll not tear away the entire kingdom, but I will leave part of it for your son, and the rest of it I will give to the one that I have, have decided. Right, so, so I'm going to bring judgment against you for your sin, not right now, but soon, and maybe not comprehensive judgment, but a significant judgment nonetheless. And in verses 14 and following, we start to see that play itself out. <coughs> the Lord raises up three adversaries, uh, against Solomon. The first one is Hadad the Edomite in verse 14. He was of the royal house of Edom. When David was in Edom, Edom the, and Joab, the commander of the army, went up to bury the slain. He struck down every male in Edom. But Hadad fled to Egypt, together with certain Edomites of his father's servants, and he was still a little child. Let's see, skip down to verse 21. When Hadad heard uh, in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the commander of the army, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, let me depart that I may go to my own country. And Pharaoh said, why do you want to leave? I've given you everything you want. He says, I want to depart anyway. So Hadad, the first of these three adversaries, is Hadad. He was uh, a refugee who fled from uh, the the, the city-wide, civilization-wide destruction under the king of David, fled to Egypt. Years later, David is dead. There's kind of a turnover, and so he says, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to get revenge on Israel, on the people of God, right? right? Uh, David killed my parents. He killed everyone that I know. I was raised as an orphan, as a refugee in Egypt, and now I'm a grown man. I'm going to go back, and I'm going to take revenge on the people of God. Same thing in verse 23 with Razon of Eliada, but instead of being uh, in Egypt to the south, he is in Syria to the north. God raised up Razon, son of Eliada, who had fled from his master, uh, and he gathered men about them, uh, the leader of a marooting band, after the killing of David. And they went to Damascus, and there they lived in Damascus, and he was an adversary uh, in Israel all the days of Solomon. So we've got, we've got threats from outside of the kingdom, from south in Egypt and from north in Syria, and we've got threats, verse 26, from within. Threats from within the royal, the, you know, uh, the royal court itself. Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, servant of Solomon, whose mother was Zeruah, a widow, was also, he also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted his hand up against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of all the house of Joseph. So Jeroboam, is, uh, he's been given a, an appointment by David to serve in his administration, and at that time, 20, verse 29, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah 
found him on the road. And he dressed himself in a new garment. And Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was with him, and he tore it into twelve pieces. And then he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, because this is what God says. I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon, and I'm going to give you ten tribes. The son, of, the son of Solomon will have one tribe for the sake of my servant David, but you will have ten. And this is going to happen because they have forsaken me and worshipped these false gods instead of doing what is right like, like David his father did. Verse 34, Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but, uh, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for, for the sake of David, my servant, who I chose. I will keep his commandments, because uh, he kept my commandments. I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and yet I will give his son one tribe, uh, that he may always have a lamp in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. So judgment is coming on Solomon on his house because of his sin. Ten tribes are going to you, Jeroboam, uh, one, really two tribes, because Benjamin is kind of attached with Judah. Uh, two tribes are going to stay and go to, Jerobo- to Rehoboam, his son. And I will take you, and here's kind of the promise from God to Jeroboam. Similar promise, similar stipulations attached that he's given to David and to Solomon. I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, if you will listen to me, and listen to all that I command you. And if you will walk in my ways and do what is right, like David did, then I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house. As I built David, I will give Israel over to you. I will afflict the offspring of David, but not forever. So you, Jeroboam, you are to walk with me, just like I told David to do, just like I told Solomon to do, and like he has failed to do. Verse 40, Solomon figures it out, tries to go kill Jeroboam, because he's worried that his, his son's inheritance is going to be diluted, but he fails. Verse 41, now everything else that Solomon did, it's written in the book of the Acts of Solomon. At the time Solomon reigned in Jerusalem was 40 years, and then he slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. The the life of King Solomon in Israel. Starts out worshiping God, starts out walking with God. Over time, he becomes more and more enamored by and allured by the world and what the world can offer him. It's a zero-sum game, right? Which means that as that happens, he's becoming less and less enamored by and uh, concerned with God and the Word of God and obeying God. Marries foreign wives, accumulates vast amounts of money and weapons, slavery, exploitation, human trafficking, right? He spends far more time and money on himself and his own things than he spends on God and with others. And by now, at the end of his life, his sins have kind of given way to apostasy and to judgment from God. Solomon is meant to serve as a cautionary tale for us. Solomon's story is a, is a painful reminder that no matter how smart you are, how wise you are, how rich you are, how powerful you are, how impressed, right, no matter what your pedigree is, no matter who your parents were, no matter how likely, you know, you're voted most likely to succeed in high school, right, right no, matter, no matter who you are and where you think you're going in this life, the most impressive person, you can still fail and you can still fall. And you need, to be, you need to be ruthlessly careful in your fight against sin. The story of Solomon is a reminder that none of us, no matter how 
uh, well-equipped and well-resourced we are, we are not self-sufficient. We need the grace of God in our lives, and in order to receive the grace of God in our lives, we need to turn from our sin and trust in Christ, and then we need to persevere all the way to the end. We need to keep on turning from sin and keep on trusting in Christ. Solomon was rich. Solomon was wise. Solomon was powerful. But Solomon did not persevere. He turned away from God and he brought the judgment of God down on him and his household. And we don't know if Solomon ended up repenting of his sin and his idolatry in the end. We don't know if he turned back to the Lord before he died. I'm inclined to think that he did, based on what we read in the book of Ecclesiastes. But we don't know. What we do know, what the life of Solomon does make very clear, is that the most important thing that we can do in our lives, the most important thing that we can do with our lives, is not to be smart, it's not to be educated, it's not to be rich, it's not to be successful, it's not to get more stuff. If the life of Solomon teaches us anything, it's that the most important thing that we can do with our lives is listen to the word of God and obey it. It's to turn from our sin and trust in Jesus and persevere in repentance and faith. That is the most important thing that any of us can do with our lives. Which, as it turns out, is what we do when we celebrate communion. We... We come together as a family. We, we proclaim the gospel to one another that, that Jesus died for our sins. His body was broken. His blood was poured out. Right? We declare to one another that we still trust in God. We are still walking with God. We are still persevering in the faith together as a church family. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you, do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, if you're, if you're a Christian, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are a part of the people of God, we invite you to celebrate communion with us. When the music starts, you can come forward down the middle. We'll have people up here that can uh, give you the, the elements and speak words of gospel encouragement over you as you take it. Go back to your seat, take a moment, confess your sin, repent of it, receive God's grace, and then celebrate together as we eat and, and drink. If you're not a Christian, we we ask that you not take communion because the Bible teaches against it. Instead, we invite you to take Christ, to trust in him to save you so that you can celebrate communion with us in the future. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the wellspring of all wisdom and of everything that is good. Lord, we thank you that you have treated us better than we deserve to be treated. And Lord, we pray that you would give us grace and strength to persevere in the faith. We pray that you would help us to turn from our sin, to repent of it, and to trust in you and to persevere together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.